welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the pod where I talk with fellow creatives and entrepreneurs about food, travel, and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion. So come on with me and let's do this. Hey, everyone. Welcome back and congratulations on making it just about halfway through February. That is a true accomplishment. Today's guest, Lana Citron, is so awesome. I would definitely want to have her on the podcast at any time. But her most recent book, Edible Pleasures, a textbook about aphrodisiacs, made it that this podcast was just asking to be posted around Valentine's Day. So Lana is an Irish author, scriptwriter, poet, teacher, and sometimes stand-up comic. We begin by talking about the fascinating universal experience of aphrodisiacs, which appears in every society worldwide. Although, guess what? Kissing is not universal, and she explains that too. She also talks about the correlation between eating and kissing. Everything I eat is a kiss. <laughs> I was like, you know, like I gobble up, you know, kisses. I jam, slather my toast with kisses, you know, <laughs> drink kisses. We also talk about the vast experiences she's had throughout her less than traditional career path and the day-to-day of her life as an author. Lana follows her curiosity to delve into each new project, and we chat about what she has learned about humanity and sensuality in the process. We also talk about the importance of stories in life. We have a thirst for it as humans. We want stories. Everything is, um, you know, everything we do is in story mode. Really, like a song is a story, you know, um, a painting is a visual story. There are so many powerful moments and honestly insightful moments for me in this conversation with Lana. So I hope that you enjoy our chat. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So you have this new book out, which I'm excited to talk with you about, all about aphrodisiacs, which, Mm -hmm. you know, there is a reason that this episode is coming out around Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But you have done so many things. You've written screenplays and poems and books of all kind. But let's talk about how your book, The Compendium of Kisses, led to your most recent work. So talk to me about that. Well, I love kissing. I I absolutely love kissing. And I've been obsessed obsessed with it um, since I was a really young woman, actually. So the first, one of the first stories I ever had published was a story about a woman who collected kisses. And she had no one to actually kiss, so she would collect them and put them in jars. And she would uh, catalogue them and categorise them. And um, I had an exhibition. I collaborated with an artist, and we had an exhibition in London probably 10 years ago now, right? And it was the old London Operating Theatre. And we filled a window. There was a huge window there, and we filled it with jar upon jar of different types of kisses, like sunburned kisses or... Um, downpour kisses oh, or wow. um, 
I loads, Prozac kisses, loads of different types. Yeah, yeah, these are such specifics that you don't even think about, but just the ones that you gave as an example, it's like, wow, they're so unique and different. Yes, each unique to, to the lips that are being met, but also to the scenario, to the person. And anyway, I'm looking at all these jars of kisses and I'm thinking, I don't know anything about kisses. I really don't know anything about kisses. And that led me to um, look at the kiss in history, in culture, in society, in, you know, through time and religion. And it was like, my God, it is so potent. It is, has so many uh, meanings attached to it. It is there from, you know, we are met when we are born. We are met with a kiss. Most babies, the first gestures, they're met by their mother's lips. Wow. You know, it's, it's incredible, right? Yeah. There's a kiss of life, kiss of death. There's a <laughs> kissing diseases. Within Christianity, uh, there's the Judas kiss. You know, so Judas goes into the Garden of Gethsemane he d- with the Roman soldiers and he doesn't go uh, uh, wave and say, it's Christ or point, he's over there. He goes up to Christ and he kisses him. It's the Judas kiss. Wow. The betrayal. And at the same time, you have Christ kissing the feet of lepers and you have, or Mary Magdalena kissing Christ's feet and you have the sanctity of uh, love, which is the meeting of the man and woman kissing uh, in marriage. It's, it's just, it blew, blew my mind, right? It's and I was so like, my rich. Gosh. It's so rich. Yeah. And then you have political kisses, right? Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so that was, I just was um, obsessed and I still am obsessed. But also, I had experienced uh, kisses with uh, lovers or um, whoever I was with that were actually sublime. Okay, so like transcendent. Yeah. Yes, completely. And these are erotic or um, romantic kisses. And what was just incredible was that romantic uh, kisses are it's not a universal gesture. There are lots of societies around the world where the kiss, this romantic kiss does not exist. Right. And I was just like, oh, my God. Are you serious? Yes. Yes, of course, because so many cultures, um, you know, they have arranged marriages. They've never, you know, yeah. like whereas in the Western world, we it's part of right. uh, romance. Yeah, and so okay. just to, just to clarify, yeah. uh, kind of for context too, in case anyone's picking up on your accent, you are Irish, although I'm you Irish, live in yeah. London now. Yes. But so this part of the world and me from America, that we can relate to this kissing being a part of all of our lives. But so this Look, is fascinating that it's book. not universal. Exactly. Every book or film, how does there's a kiss in every film? Almost every single film, it ends with a kiss. Mm. Okay, for us, it's such a huge symbol of the beginning of the happy ever after, or you know, the the relationship. It's it is huge in many African societies, early societies. That like, um, it was sacrilegious. It was like the soul uh, would escape the body if uh, you were to kiss someone. Mm. So people weren't kissed on the lips. And there are, I don't know if you've ever seen them, there's a certain tribe that cuts a woman's lip and they no. have those dishes. Have you ever seen <gasps> oh, them? Oh, yes, I have. Yes, that's part of it. Wait, that's why a, Why do they put the dishes so in the muti- lip? It actually mutilates the lip so it can't so be kissed. That, but it, oh, it wow. all stems from this idea that, you know, you could take one's soul, you could kiss one's soul away. But the 
uh, Christian viewpoint is the opposite. Soulmates, soul on lovers' lips. Wow. It's just, it's just this wonderful. Is, it's I just, mean, this is not, fascinating. Okay, I love but it. so I love how it. Okay. did kissing lead then to okay. your latest book, Edible Pleasures? Okay, so, right. I am reading about kissing and doing my research, and I come across this. Um, I'm going to read it from the book, actually. Okay, right? so this is a uh, passage from yeah. Edible Pleasures. I have to put my glasses on now, right? Okay. So, Freud conjectured that erotic kissing is a gesture reminiscent to that of being breastfed. However, there is a significant difference between a child ingesting milk and two adults kissing. The child will eventually be satiated, whereas the adult's hunger can only increase. Hunger, in this case, being desire. Yet, when we do kiss, romantically devouring the object of our longing, there is undoubtedly a return to the sensuous primary experience of suckling. As Adam Phillips, and he's another uh, psychologist, uh, entertainingly put it, if in a crude psychoanalytic interpretation, kissing could be described as aim-inhibited eating, we should also consider the more nonsensical option that eating can also be, as Freud will imply, aim-inhibited kissing. So in my head, I was like, oh my God, everything I eat is a kiss. <laughs> I was like, you know, like I gobble up, you know, kisses. I jam, slather my toast with kisses, you know, <laughs> drink kisses. I just, I was like, oh, it's really interesting and of course so I grew up um, in a, a Jewish home and food was love food yeah. was love we were like um, are you okay no I don't feel very well have something to eat, eat. This. like it was hysterical anyway and what, I, what were some of those dishes for you what when you think of love home. in food and home what are those dishes can you be specific uh, personally it would um, it's always uh, Friday night dinner Friday night dinner is is the heart of the family it's uh it's home it's anchoring it's you know it's everyone together around the kitchen yeah. table yeah it's chicken soup obviously mm. panacea to all life's ills um but actually um bread and butter yeah bread and butter really and good the, bread and really good butter yeah you can't actually beat that i totally agree with you it's just wonderful and there's like this uh bread in uh ireland it's like a batch batch loaf and you'd have the heel of the loaf and it was like double thickness of a slice right and so you'd have two slices in one <laughs> and i was just like oh my god i just would wanted to get the heel yeah. and um and then i would like butter it once when i think of love and home it is a bread actually it's a it's a bread that my mom makes it's a challah yeah. bread um, really? With, yeah. And she's made it my whole life. And that scent, too, yes. is, you know, all of the senses are kind of wrapped up in that. So that's how I was drawn into it, into this. Uh, I knew nothing about uh, aphrodisiacs. Not really. I knew what an aphrodisiac was. I knew the kind of tired um, representations of aphrodisiacs, like oysters and, right. you know, uh, um, asparagus. But I didn't know why. And I didn't. Right. No, and this was the one thing that was very interesting, that it is universal. It is oh. every, it appears in every single society and goes back, uh, this relationship between food and sexual desire goes back to 
time immemorial and is recorded way, way back in ancient tracts and texts and books. And it is incredible. We all hear, okay, oysters are an aphrodisiac. So is yeah. there truth to that? Yes. If it's universal yes. and they're all... So yes. this is something that is not... This is not a wives' tale. No, it's not a wives' tale. But there is uh, the caveat being that one's, like, man's most um, erogenous zone is his or her mind, okay? And so it's what um, I suppose you impose... um, upon um, the the food that you're eating, whether it's has it's a panacea, you know, or or whether it has a direct effect. So of course there are foods that do have a direct effect. I mean I think there's like four different types of aphrodisiacs. So there's like the medical aphrodisiac. So an aphrodisiac is something that you ingest, okay? Um, that provokes desire. So medical or pharmaceutical um, aphrodisiacs would be like Viagra. Mm-hmm. Viagra. Yeah. That has an effect. It has a, a definite effect. Okay. Right. Then there are like biochemical aphrodisiacs, and they are um, foods that would contain specific um, vitamins or minerals that are particularly um, good for perhaps your sex drive or just health. You know, so um, you know, zinc in oysters or um, phosphorus in fish. So when you're researching for a book like this or mm-hmm. any any of your other books, where do you start? How do you how do you like all of these facts that you're now just rattling off? Yeah, <laughs> you you didn't just dream them up. Like you obviously yeah. you did your research. Yeah. Where do you begin? Well, I will just say. Um, I I studied history uh, as a student, right? So I didn't think. Oh, I ha- I wasn't scared of doing research. I was just curious. I'm the I was the kid, right, who would like leave me in a in an old tumble down house. I'd be there for hours, looking at this, looking at that. You know, opening old drawers, like rooting through things, just seeing, <laughs> uh, going up to the attic, seeing what was in the attic. Like I love. I'm curious. Right. So, this this career so, suits you. <laughs> yeah. So I, I actually I'm, I, I I do enjoy it. And so you read an article, which leads you to another article. Mm. So it's like when you find a novel or a book, and you read uh, the book and you love this author and then you you're usually able to uh, find an article on them and they may be citing other other authors right. and you're like ah yeah and bring me here go down bring the rabbit there. hole yeah 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 yeah, it's so wonderful. You, I love it. You let your curiosity lead yeah, you. Yeah, totally. Would totally. you say that like that's your job is to follow your curiosities? Yeah, totally. Actually, totally. I, <laughs> I get I get bored very easily. Yeah. Also, I think I have quite a well a good instinct. Um, if something is uh, bullshit or um, doesn't stand up or is too general and not mm. specific enough, it's like uh, um, I, I follow my nose. Yeah. Which comes back to which comes back back to kissing Mm. which comes back to why we use aphrodisiacs yeah i mean the senses are all so so related something that really stuck out to me and what you just said which is obviously true when you think about it is that our minds are the most erogenous is that what is that how you Yeah. yeah and and that's absolutely true when when you think about it you are a creative person, mm-hmm. so you use your mind in in a lot of different creative ways, right? So I'm I'm veering us away from the eroticism, although we will come back to it. As a creative person, and as a person who you make art with words, mm-hmm. how do you define 
yourself and what you do. I, I And the way that I'm coming at this, I guess, is, and this kind of goes back to even conversations we had before I turned the microphone on. Sorry, people who are listening that you weren't in on that, but that, that we do a lot of different things, right? So I'm a YouTuber slash podcaster slash writer slash all of the slashes. You are a word person. You're a creative person. I'm wondering how you define what you do. I think I don't define what I do other than uh, being what I do, okay? So in the sense I am a writer, I write, okay? Um, What I do find um, difficult to deal with, um, maybe in society, I suppose, is that you have to be this. You have to brand yourself and you have to um, present yourself in a particular way. Personally, I find that hard to accept, actually, because I think we're, we're so many different things. I guess there are ways to simplify it or ways to, like, you know, expand the box Mm -hmm. because you said, I am a writer. And that seems very simple. But you are a fiction and nonfiction writer. You write Mm -hmm. poems. You write screenplays. You write, like, you write all these different things. But you kind of are able to fold it all in together and just say very simply, I'm a writer. Yes. Yeah. So do you? <laughs> I can't. I can't say anymore. Like, there's nothing else. I can't like dress it up. So it's not uh, worth it for you to like say the slash slash slash. I'm all these things. Does it mean more if I do? No. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Like I, that's. It. I mean, it's interesting. I when people present themselves and um, if someone says to me, I'm awesome I'm doing this and I'm doing that I'm, and I'm looking at them going you don't know who the fuck you are ah uh, interesting yeah so <laughs> yeah no I think you hit a really good point it's just like I, d- I don't have to do a little dance for you and uh-huh. tingling little bells yeah okay <laughs> either you're into it or not like so, yeah yeah so on top of being a writer though uh-huh. you have in your career been a stand-up comic yes okay so tell me about that so like okay you know- so that was that was just amazing i loved it and hated it <laughs> and it freaked me out totally uh talk about being out of your comfort zone so i um i had as a you know as a kid wanted to be an actress okay and I and had, you have training. Yeah, I have yeah. training and I did a lot of acting at university. And then I came over to London and I did some acting. Um, and I, and it, but I didn't really have the confidence, the inner confidence to succeed, I think. And then what happened was while I was acting, I was writing. And I think I was mid-twenties and I was just like, I can't uh, take the rejection anymore of going from audition to audition. And then I got two great jobs, right? One was like um, Indiana Jones, like as a part in Indiana, like one of the TV episodes. Oh, really? Literally Indiana Jones? Yes. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, although I ended up on the cutting floor. Don't, don't get too excited. <laughs> and then another one was Space Precinct, right? And I was the murderess or something. Anyway, so it was, um, but it gave me enough money to take a year off. And I just um, wrote, I began began to write. And at the end of that year, um, I also, I began to write. I did lots of acting courses. I tried to get uh, work and it didn't come. And I thought, enough, that's it. I've given myself 
that, that's it, I can't do this anymore. And I had also written some stories and I sent them away and one of them was uh, picked up and then an agent got in touch with me. And suddenly a whole new a door opened and that's how I began writing. And was there no turning back? There was no turning back. Mm-hmm. No turning back. Anyway, fast forward a few years and um, I was talking to a friend of mine and he had married a, a comedian, right? And I was like, oh my God, that's like the hardest thing. That's the most naked thing you can do is stand up in front of a room of people and try and make them laugh. So vulnerable, and, yeah. yeah. And I was just like, oh God, I could never do that. I could never do that. And she said, actually, my friend um, runs courses, uh, comedy courses. Why don't you go to one? And I was like, no, I could never do that. And then I was like, oh, maybe I can do that. <laughs> maybe I can do that. Right. So I, I signed up for this course. And at the end of the course, um, you were you were to do five minutes uh, on stage in this crappy little uh, bar in Camden. I think it's called the end. Not the. I can't remember what it's called. Anyway. So uh off I go I do my five minutes and uh, there's a producer there and there were a few of the girls uh, young women who'd, who'd done it as well and she came up to us afterwards and she said I like what you do I like what you do da, da, da. and she said how about you uh, all of you lot coming up to Edinburgh for the festival oh whoa yeah. and I was just like yeah and so I did I ended up uh, doing a month's run in um, in Edinburgh that is so cool and I was it was it was the worst of times. It was the best of times. <laughs> it was. It was. Oh my god! It was unbelievable. And then. Unbelievable. And then. And then I wrote a book about it. <laughs> Which one was that? <laughs> the Brodsky touch. Yeah. Okay. Hey, sister, uh, and so just to just to name off some of your accomplishments here: sucker, spilt milk, yeah, transit, yeah, the honey trap, yeah, the Brodsky touch, which yeah. you just talked about, a compendium of kisses, then and then yes. of course edible pleasures. Yeah. Did I hit them all? Yes, you that did. That's a lot of things, and that's not even including the screenplays and and the right. other things that you've well, done. Been at it a while, Katie. So, so do you? What kind of advice do you give for people who want to be a writer, who want to get published? I think I just read an article, or I know yeah. I just read. I don't think I just read. Mm-hmm. I just read an article in the New York Times talking about how with Amazon and everything making a living as an author is harder now than it's ever been yeah it was like a super cynical take but you know maybe just like a realistic take so what do you say good or bad good and bad to young aspiring authors or just young young writers Um, well I'm really fortunate because I actually teach creative writing as well and um the talent that I see uh, knocks me for six. It's such a privilege to teach, actually. And um, I think I think there's always room for people. Are always looking for the next um, the next big voice, and also uh, a voice that hasn't been heard before. So the next new thing, and and publishers are always looking for a good story. Okay, now. Or uh, the same story, but told in, in a different way, in an authentic way, and in a way perhaps they haven't heard before. We have a thirst for it as humans. We want stories. Everything is, um, you know, everything we do is in story mode. You, really, like a song is a story, you know, um, a painting is a visual story or mm. a visual narrative. I mean, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Anyway, so um, to make a living, it's really 
difficult unless you hit um, the big time, okay? So you might have a realistic... Um, do have realistic ex expectations and you're just going to have to have belief in yourself and get out there and um, shop your um, stuff around. What's very interesting though is now with self-publishing mm -hmm. and I think that is actually like a lot of my peers. So people who uh, was published with me you know um, and now they will um, self-publish pu self and in a way um, it's becoming much uh, it, it has become very interesting because it's a way of making money whereas if you're with a publisher you may get an advance but you'll probably get quite a small advance unless it's a huge thing and you have an amazing agent or a very you know or and, and this is you, you'll be able to relate to this you have already established a brand they want people with um, an audience right they want you know th yeah they want to be able to sell so with publishers it's business they want to sell books forget art forget self-expression and you know um and, and being uh, tender about it. They want good stories that work uh, and um, and to be able to sell that. So if you come and say, I have got X, uh, X million followers, they're like, oh my God, we have a ready, we have an audience that's ready to receive this. Yes. Okay. So what if you're a new author getting into things now without the past that you had? Do you think that the first... They, they have more chance of um, being... Uh, yeah, they have as much chance or even more because people want a fresh voice. They're mm, always interesting. looking for a fresh voice. Okay. okay? Yeah. So I think it's... Um, yeah, it is a really interesting time. And it is a really, like any of the arts, a difficult... Um, a profession and that the reality is most writers are either teaching creative writing or are journalists or are doing something else mm -hmm. as well as writing books um yeah i'm curious about your writer routine so you've been a writer for so long okay you teach yeah. creative writing workshops so so this is you probably even talk to students about like every morning, first thing for one hour, right? Or, you know, no. you hear things like that. What's your writer routine? So my writer routine is um, I've always written when my kids are at school because that's the only time I could write. How many kids do you have? Two. Okay. So um, that, yeah. So that was uh, when I wrote. I think with writing... With writing the kind of novels I write or the, the works that I write, um, I only ever write what I want to write, okay? I'm not very good at, like, um, being told what to write. Uh, so, um, I guess, uh, and in a way, I think, why would anyone want to be a writer? Like, why would you even choose? It's the hardest bloody thing in the world. Why would you put such an onerous task on your shoulders? Right. Like, unless you bloody well had to. So for me, I guess, um, the, this uh, form, you know, it's, it's my comfort zone. I, I love it. I love it. It's like breath. So you, it's, be, sorry, I, I feel like I wrapped that up just as you said the most beautiful thing that that writing is like breath i kind of want to let that sink in for a second because that's beautiful hmm. Hmm. yeah 
Do your kids write? Uh, one is just learning how to write. Yeah, like literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. And then the other one, um, he, yeah. So he just showed me, um, he's much older, and he showed me a, an essay he did um, on this African warlord, I have to say this, called General But Naked. <laughs> he was an African warlord during the civil war in Liberia. Uh, incredible, incredible. Who has now found uh, God. And um, yeah, he's written this incredible es- essay on him. And it was very interesting. Uh, like really interesting to me because I, I, I didn't uh, know know about this. And uh, um, yeah, it, wonderful. So yeah, he, he writes. He's a good, good writer. How has motherhood affected your writing your writing Writing. and your career terrible (laughs) never have a child um how has it affected my it's difficult it's actually quite difficult yeah Um, on the other hand (laughs) uh, although it does uh bring with it many difficulties and um you know, just organising time and um, not even time, but uh, brain clarity, Hmm. like for sure, after the early days of, you know, being a a mother where you kind of become bovine. uh, I hear my friends who have kids (laughs) have said similar things. They're like, what happened to my brain? Literally. Yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) That's so interesting. There's so many things. You you just don't, you're so either exhausted uh, or it's you know you you've got you go back to basics so you're doing like sounds mama baba you know then you're doing like little nursery rhymes and but just to clear your head completely so that you can actually have a coherent thought is quite difficult at times but that said the love that they bring and the joy is just uh, phenomenal and uh, fundamental to one's soul I mean to one's being like uh, I can't oh my god um yeah it's it's just incredible incredible incredibly inspiring so like the most one of the most joyful things last year was my the little fella was uh, I'd go and collect him from school and um, the way the building is is that there's like a uh, on ground floor there's a sliding door his classroom into his classroom it's mirrored so all the the uh, parents are outside waiting and then the door slides back and you see all like 30 little faces and they're all looking looking for their parent madly madly (laughs) and then our eyes meet and the joy and the happiness that that arises is just incredible it's just wonderful and that is just so special and then there's another thing that just when they slip their hand into yours into your hand they hold your hand and it's just so beautiful this little hand with these little fingers it's it's there's nothing better because you're a writer and you think about 
you think about things a lot and you think about your experiences and truth and sensuality and all the things we've already talked about. If you're more aware of those things, because I'm sure all moms feel that when the when the hand slips in, but you just described it so eloquently that it's clear like this has occurred to you before, right? That I'm not asking you a question yes, that you yes. never uh, thought of before. And I wonder if there is a correlation between your career, what you do for a living, also having you experiencing life in a richer way. And well, it's not for me to say it's a richer way, or but it's a different way. And so I suppose that's how I look at at everything. If I'm looking at, um, I mean, maybe it's just the way I see things, uh, or perceive my perception of of life, you know. And I suppose even why people do things. I'm quite interested in motives, people's motives. So <clears throat> even just in co- conversations uh, between people or how someone presents themselves or in any social gathering. So that's kind of interesting to me. What would you say your motive is? Get through the day. <laughs> um, <laughs> Isn't that all of our motives? <laughs> you know what? Um, I think as um, I had the wrong motive as a young woman. I think uh, I was very much, I had to be someone. There was like this, you know, massive, um, God, it was terrible. Like in, and maybe it's a pressure that young people do feel. I've got to be someone. I've got to prove myself to people. I've got to prove myself to myself. I've got, I've got to recognize me. Someone recognize me. And now it's like, I recognize me. It doesn't matter. It's yeah. okay. I, right? This is my world. And, you know, it's kind of like, it, or it's more just, it's okay. It's, it's self acceptance, or it's just like accepting others, or it's okay. Whatever. You know, love, experience love, be loved, enjoy. I have so enjoyed talking to you about all of your the twists and turns of your career and 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 about aphrodisiacs. So Lana, how do you keep it quirky? I think I'd always kind of thought I was quirky. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so Lana be... just did the air quotes, just so you know. <laughs> how to be normal? <laughs> your question really should be. Um, yeah, I always. I think. Um, I always find myself out of my comfort zone. I always find myself out of my comfort zone. On purpose? uh, Yeah, I like, uh, yeah, you know, enough to um, to keep it quirky, to keep um, to keep myself uh, challenged, you know, to be nervous, to to think, Jesus Christ, what's going to happen next? That's how I keep it quirky. <laughs> I think that's amazing. I think I think that's amazing. Um, life is never boring for you, is it? Mm, there are, bo- of course, there's boring uh, periods. Yeah, of course. But then you just have to trust trust time, and uh, things do change. They always change. Lana, thank you so much for coming on the Keep It Quirky podcast. Everyone, go out and get yourself edible pleasures. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Thanks again for coming on the podcast, Lana. Be sure to check her out on Instagram, 365aphrodisiacs. That's the numbers 365 and then aphrodisiacs. And pick up a copy of one of her books. Thanks as always to Funky Brian for the theme song. And I'll be back soon. In the meantime, don't forget to keep it quirky. Thank <laughs> you.